Father, thanks for this night tonight. Lord, thanks for uh, this opportunity to be in your word. We know, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And we pray, Father, that would have information but also application in our lives, Lord. As we look at the Apostle Paul's life and see how you used used him mightily, Lord, we can glean so much from him in in our own lives. And so we pray your blessing upon our time together, Lord. We ask that you'd you'd anoint it, Lord. Uh, Thank you for this great time of worship, Lord. And now we just continue to worship you through the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last time Paul arrived in Jerusalem, we saw that he no sooner got there, he entered the temple when the entire city, I mean, they went crazy. They were filled uh, with anger because the rumor was going around that Paul had taken a Gentile into the temple. Riot broke out, which surely would have ended in Paul's death had not a Roman soldier and, uh, uh, you know, rushed in and rescued him from his own people. Knowing that, you know, it was, a, it was a feast that they were celebrating. The Romans, they were there watching to make sure there was no uprisings going on. They basically saved Paul's life just in the nick of time. Now, this Roman captain, he had no idea what was going on. But he arrests Paul and he binds in his hands just as was prophesied back in chapter 21, and he starts to haul him away when Paul turns and says to the guard in his Greek language, hey, buddy, can I talk to you a minute? Okay, that's not what he said. He said, in verse 37 of chapter 21, may I speak to you? Then he asks permission from this captain to talk to the angry mob. You know, nothing seemed to phase the Apostle Paul. Had no fear. I mean, he could say, man, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul could look at this angry mob and look up to God and realize the one who is for him is far greater than those who are against him. So Paul, he's looking out. He's seeing this great multitude of people, and his heart is going out to them. They're, they're, they're Jews, and he wants to tell them that Jesus is their Messiah. So he gets permission to speak. Now, this speech in chapter 22 has been called Paul's defense. But it's more than that. This really is Paul's testimony of how he came to know Jesus Christ, the road that it took, and and what happened right after that. No doubt Paul's heart here is pounding with excitement, getting the opportunity uh, to address the Jewish people. I mean, he's been sharing with the Gentiles for so long now. This is his opportunity to share with his fellow Jews. So the guard gives him permission. We left off with this cliffhanger in verse 40. Look at verse 40 of chapter 21 where we read, So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Now again, what Paul is going to share is his testimony. And really a blueprint for us when we share our testimonies, when we go to share our faith. It's kind of an outline on how to share our testimony. It really follows a three-point outline here. Uh, Tell about your life before you came to Christ, number one. Number two, how you met Christ. And number three, your life since you met met Christ. And that's how it's broken down here. Verses 3 through 5 is Paul's life before Christ. Verses 6 through 16 is how Paul met Christ. And then verses 17 through 21 is Paul's life since he met Christ. His his testimony. Now when some people share their testimony, I I have to wonder if it really is a testimony because they'll share about all the old things that they used to do. Oh man, he used to party. He would fly out to Vegas and gamble and drink. And man, crazy weekend, man. It was amazing. Then I got saved. Now I'm born again. (laughs) Really. (laughs) 
man, sorry to bother you. <laughs> Come on. I don't know if that's really a testimony. I don't know if you're really saved. But we all have a testimony of what God has done in our lives. And I love, I've shared this before. I love Tim Hawkins, and he's the comedian, you know, what he said about testimonies. He says, have you ever wished that you had a better testimony in, in, in your life? You're at church and you listen to the guy on the stage and say, man, he's got an awesome testimony. I've got a horrible one. I wish I was addicted to crack. You know, man, this isn't, isn't good. Listen, all of our testimony is based on the fact that we recognize that we've all sinned. And we've all needed forgiveness of our sin. We've come to a point in our lives when we recognize our sin has separated us from God. And unless we confess our sin and turn from them, we will be separated from God for all eternity. Someone shares with us the love of Christ, the love of Jesus, what He has done by dying on the cross, rising again from the dead, how He took the penalty of our sin from us upon the cross so we wouldn't have to. And we get saved. Our sin's forgiven. We commit our lives to Him. We're saved. We're no longer going to spend eternity uh, in hell, but now we're going to spend uh, in heaven with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every Christian has a testimony. And we mustn't think just because you don't have a radical testimony that God didn't radically save you. Man, we're all radically saved. Let me give you an example. Some years ago in a church in England, the pastor noticed that a former burglar was kneeling at the communion rail beside, beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England. The very judge who, years before, had sentenced the burglar to seven years in prison. Well, after his release, the burglar had been converted to Christ and had become a Christian worker. Well, after the service, the judge uh, and the pastor walked home together, and the judge asked, did you see who was kneeling down beside me at the communion rail? Yes, replied the pastor, but I didn't know that you noticed. Well, the two men walked in silence for a few moments, and then the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Well, then the judge says, well, who do you refer to? Well, the pastor replied, well, to the conversion of that convict. The judge says, no, but I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. And the pastor said, what do you mean? The judge replied, that burglar knew how much he needed Christ to save him from his sins. But look at me. I, I was taught from childhood to live as a gentleman, to keep my word, to say my prayers, to go to church. I went through Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. Pastor, nothing but the grace of God could have caused me to admit that I was a sinner on the level with that burglar. It took much more grace to forgive me of all my pride and self-righteousness to get me to admit that I was no better in the eyes of God than that convict whom I had sent to prison. Wow. See, we all have a testimony. We all have a testimony of the powerful work that God has done in our lives. And I think this is a great, that was a great illustration, a great story of Paul's testimony, where Paul came from. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, a very religious person, but without Christ. And all that changed. Again, Paul's about to share his testimony with this angry crowd of Jews. It's the second of three times that the story of Paul's conversion is told in the book of Acts. And it begins with his old life. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you are all today. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring and change even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul is talking about his old life before Christ. 
Again, he came from a very religious background. He says it so in verse 3, From my youth I had been zealous for God. And although he was born in Tarsus in southern Asia Minor, he grew up in Jerusalem where he was tutored by the famous and highly respected Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel had written uh, about concerning Paul as a student. Gamaliel said of Paul that he had only one difficulty with him as a student, and that was keeping him supplied with enough books. And as a Pharisee, I mean, Paul was trained according to the strictest Jewish uh, law of the Jewish fathers. He had a zeal to preserve the ancient traditions, which led him to persecute to the death this new sect known as the Way, basically Christians. And Paul was going so far as to imprison not only men, but also women. He was heartless, even if that meant ripping moms from their, from their children. And he didn't re- restrict that zeal to those in Jerusalem, but he was on his way to Damascus to round up the Christians that were there. And what a past. You think you have a bad past. But I like that, that Paul turns and looks directly at the high priest and the elders that are there. And, 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 and he says, look at verse 5, As also the high priest bears me witness in all the councils of, of the elders. I mean, you guys know it. You guys remember. You, I mean, you guys sent me. You gave me the letters to go to Damascus. I was down there. You saw my old life. You know what I was like. You know, we can share that with, with believers now, you know, non-believers. Man, you know my old life. Man, we used to hang out together. But now, look what God has done in my life. And, and, and there are times when our testimony can really relate to the people you're sharing with. So I'm sure what Paul said caught the Jews' attention. They could relate to what Paul was saying. You know, I come, and you guys, many of you guys know this, I come from a Roman Catholic upbringing. When I share with a Roman Catholic, you know, we can relate on so many levels because, uh, you, you know, I know where they're coming from. They know I know where they're coming from. And, 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 and so we can relate to that. It's the same if you were raised Mormon or even atheist, whatever. Sometimes God brings people into your life to share with them that come from the same background. So you can minister to them and, and you can relate God to them in the way that they can really understand. Now, God doesn't need to do that. I think of the blind man that, that Jesus healed and the religious leaders at the time wanted to know how this happened. How could you change like this? What's going on? And his simple testimony was, hey, once I was blind, now I see. See, Paul here, though speaking to an angry mob of Jews, started with his old life before Christ. I was just like you. But worse, I persecuted this way to the death. You ever think about the heaviness that Paul had on his heart because of his old life? Wishing those things had never happened. I think we too can look back and say, Oh, I wish I had never gone down that path. I wish I wish I'd come to Christ when I was younger. I wish I, I, I this or done that. You know, uh, the bottom line is that God does forgive us and God has cleansed us, and there's no more condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. But there are those regrets. Now, Paul didn't stay too long in his old life, just enough so they can relate to. Uh, what he's coming from. And, and same thing with us when we're sharing our testimony. We don't want to stay too long on our old life. But salvation is the good news. Our conversion is the good news. So Paul gets to the good part, the second part of your testimony, his conversion. Look at verses 6 to 11 now. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise 
and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things that which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. So we have Paul's conversion. Let me say this. Paul wasn't on, his, on the way to Damascus contemplating the claims of Christ as he marched towards Damascus, seeking to put Christians to death. He wasn't reading or rereading the scriptures to see if they spoke of Jesus' death and resurrection or to see if the ancient prophecies pointed to Jesus as Israel's Messiah. He was not unhappy with his Judaism. You know, he wasn't searching for another way. Rather, he was militantly defending the Jewish faith, seeking to rid of these heretics who claimed that Jesus was the Christ. That's why Paul would write in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why were we yet sinners? Why were we going down that path, not even thinking about Jesus Christ? He died for us to make a way for salvation. You see, Jesus sought Paul out and saved him in the same way that Jesus sought you and I out and saved us. But Paul's point here was that he wanted to make sure that all listening knew that, that we've all sinned, that we've all started, fallen short of the glory of God, but also God has chosen us to come to salvation and to find forgiveness. So Paul goes on, he says in verse 7, So I fell to the ground, and as I fell, I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, paraphrase, man, I was afraid, scared me to death. I said, Lord, you know, who are you, Lord? And then the answer came. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. So there Paul's eyes were opened. He sees that, that uh, uh, it was Jesus. He, he knew he'd been mistaken all along. He came to know that Jesus was not a, a bad man, but the God man, and that Christ is the Messiah, and that he wasn't in the tomb. And I'm sure as Paul spoke Jesus' name, at that point, the crowd's going, whoa, wait a minute. You know, it's all coming back now. It's all being tied in together. And I knew that he, he knew that he wouldn't have much more time. And so what happened next is Paul, realizing this, he realized he has more to share uh, in his result of coming to Christ. Again, he's got his conversion. What happened? How the Lord came to him? How his eyes were open? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. You're persecuting. Lord, what would you have me to do? That all goes together. You know, you come to know Christ and God has something for you to do uh, as well. But then Paul is still sharing his testimony. The result of coming to Christ is he's baptized. In fact, Paul's testimony teaches us that baptism is an important confession of our faith in Christ. Look at verses 12 through 16. Now, Paul's blind. He's been led around. Then in verse 12, then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen that you should know his will and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So no sooner did Paul receive his sight through Ananias' ministry that he exhorted him to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now some interpret this verse to mean that, that water baptism washes away our sins. But if it's teaching that, then the dozens of other verses that state that our sins are forgiven by grace through faith in Christ alone must be thrown out. And so we really don't get to pick and choose what verses stay and verses go. So, so the interpretation of this verse must be wrong. In other words, it's far easier, it makes more sense to harmonize this verse 
with the predominant teaching of Scripture that salvation is through faith in Christ alone than vice versa. In fact, Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3.21. He says that baptism saves you, but then he clarifies what he means. This is not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, quite often, Scripture does what Peter does there. It closely associates the act of baptism with what that act symbolizes. Baptism in water pictures what God has already done in a person's heart through faith that he's washed away our sins. Paul here had already called upon the name of the Lord, at which point God washed away his sins. Now, the act of baptism is in obedience to the Lord's command. It's a graphic picture of our, and source of assurance that we've been cleansed and forgiven the moment we trusted in Christ. We go down under the water, putting to death the old man, washing away those old sins. We come up out of the water in that newness of life. God has called us to be baptized. Now, don't miss this here. If you've been saved, if God has cleansed you of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ, then you need to be baptized. You need to show, you know, what God has already done in your heart. That's why, you know, infant baptism makes no sense whatsoever. You need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Now, I would say if you were baptized as a baby, but now you're truly born again, I would do it again because now it means something to you. The same way if you're baptized as a young child, you know, maybe you're young, eight, nine years old, whatever, because maybe your parents forced you to or because you're just going along with the crowd. I'll say do it again. Man, it just, it just means so much more to you now. And we have a baptism, August 21st, 6.30 at Nixapool. Make sure you're included if you've never confessed your faith through baptism. So, Paul's testimony here teaches us that being zealously religious does not reconcile us to God, but that salvation is by God's grace and power, not by our own merit, not by our own will or power. It teaches us also that God humbles us before he extends mercy to us. It teaches us that baptism is an important confession of our faith in Christ. So Paul is giving his testimony and what it was like before he was saved, how he got saved on the road to Damascus. And now he shares what happened after he got saved. Now, I don't know what it was like for you when you told your friends or even your family that you were now born again. I think we all have different experiences depending on how we were raised. Maybe you thought, your parents thought you were just going through a fad and this too will pass. Perhaps like my friends, they thought, oh, Tom's got religion now. Oh, no, you know, they thought that. Now, my mom was appalled and said, how could you leave the Catholic Church? How could you do this to your dead father? You know, and well, praise God, she came to know the Lord before she passed away. But we all have different experiences when we come to Christ and we go to share our faith. So Paul, in finishing up his testimony, he's sharing what God has done, how God worked in his life, and, and what God was doing after he got saved. Look at verse 7. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now, it sounds like from the texture that Paul returned immediately to Jerusalem from Damascus, but that's not the way things happen. Paul stayed in Damascus for a short period of time. Then he went out into the desert. He went out into Arabia, and there he spent close to three years as God revealed uh, to Paul during the period God's will for, for Paul's life, as God connected the whole understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures with Paul. Paul then returned from Arabia to Damascus, began to preach Christ boldly in the synagogues. God, the Jews, all upset, who then decided to kill him. So his friends then lowered Paul down uh, over the wall in the basket so he could escape from Damascus because the Jews were waiting at the gate of the city to ambush him, ambush him when, when he left. 
So it comes down to Jerusalem, but, so it came down to Jerusalem, but that was some three years later. So Luke kind of passes over all of that here, at least a lot of history out, and perhaps Paul did it in his witness as well here. But he's getting to this point. Paul states in verse 17 that he was in a trance and he saw Jesus. Now to my knowledge, I've never really been in a trance, except when I'm sleepy and just out of it staring off into space. I think sometimes, you know, I see you guys out there just kind of in this trance going, oh, okay, they got to be done. I say, okay, you guys maybe had a trance, but I'm not saying I'm not open to, to being in a trance. I'm open to anything that God wants to do and speak to me. If God wants to speak to me in a trance and show me a vision or speak to me, it doesn't, I mean, I think it'd be exciting. I think it would freak me out, but, but I'm open to what he wants. But I'll tell you this. He doesn't need to, to use that because we have his word. And God quite often speaks to me through his word. And I get just as blessed beyond measures. God speaks to me right out of his word. Yeah, Paul had this impression, impressive vision of Jesus while in the temple. Yet he never referred to this vision in any of his letters. And he seems to only mention it now out of necessity. That's because all of Paul's life was focused upon God's truth. Upon God's word, not upon spiritual experiences. He didn't even like to talk about this thing. Notice Paul doesn't even stay focused on the emotional experience either in recounting his testimony. He focuses on what the Lord said to him, not the way in which the Lord spoke to him. In fact, the Lord warned him, look at verse 18, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So, again, Paul was warned. Paul wanted to talk to the Jews. He wanted to share with them the love of Christ to, to his fellow countrymen. But Jesus says, they're not going to receive it. They're not going to receive it. The Lord says, uh, 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 get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So verse 19, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who are killing him. See what's going on here? The Lord tells Paul, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And Paul says, wait a minute, God. They know me. Surely they're going to listen to me. When they know the changes that have taken place in my life, they'll know how I persecuted the church, Lord. I know that they're going to believe. You know what? It's not really wise to argue with the Lord. God says, hey, you need to move. This is what's happening. And Paul's going, no, wait a minute, God, you don't understand. <laughs> okay, Paul, always a mistake. Because anytime you find yourself arguing with the Lord, you know, just know you're wrong. The Lord's always right. And yet I find myself, there are times that I do argue with the Lord, trying to persuade the Lord to see things. My, oh, Lord, we really need to do this now. Lord, Lord, we really, Lord, you really need to have this happen. Lord, can't you see? Uh, this is uh, natural, Lord. But again, whenever you argue with the Lord, you're wrong. Well, then Paul tells a crowd of angry Jews what the Lord said to him. Look at verse 21. This is where it gets a little tense. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. (laughs) Whoa. I mean, that one word, Gentile, was like waving a red flag before a bull as far as the Jews were concerned. That one word was mentioned. It was like, like lighting a match to, to gasoline. Immediate explosion. Away with such a fellow from the earth where he is not fit to live. 
What a thing to say. Two things I noticed here. Number one, Paul's audience reacted emotionally to his testimony. Paul's audience reacted emotionally to his testimony. They're not thinking rationally at this point. Let me say this. Anytime you share your testimony with people, they may react emotionally as well. You know, and, and anytime people react emotionally to the gospel, you know, they should calm down. And they need to ask themselves why. Paul didn't get a chance to, to get them to do this, but if, but if you're witnessing to someone who reacts emotionally to your testimony, don't get drawn into their response by getting emotional yourself. And if that's easy to do. You know, ah, oh, you know, I don't believe this. No, no, no. Well, yeah, you need to believe it. And all of a sudden you're both shouting at each other. Okay, that's no way to sh- share a testimony. Rather calm down and try to get them calmed down enough to see why they reacted the way that they did. Maybe someone in their past, maybe they were hurt at church, maybe they blamed God for something, maybe there's some deep down hurt, and, and to stay calm and really talk to them, get them to draw that out, and you'll be able to minister to them. But number two, what I see going on here is that obviously these Jews were prejudiced towards the Gentiles. I mean, it's very obvious. So when Paul said, God sent me to the Gentiles, I mean, they saw red. They wanted the fight. The very idea that Paul could connect God's name with the Gentiles was appalling to them. See, it was okay if the Gentiles wanted to become Jews, and it was okay if the Jews wanted to become Christians. But it wasn't okay that Gentiles could become Christians in the same way that Jews could. See, the Jews' attitude towards the Gentiles was, let them go to hell. We're the people of God. We're the chosen instruments of God. We don't like anybody who suggests that God is going to save those Gentiles in the same way that he saves us Jews. Pure racial prejudice. You know, it's a sad thing that we're seeing the same racial prejudice in our own country today. Not with Gentiles and Jews, but, but those are different races. And I grew up in the, in the 60s, and, and, and one thing I, I do notice is, is that even though there is still racial hatred that whites have towards blacks or Hispanics or any other racial group uh, that they shouldn't have, what I am seeing now is, is a hatred now that's going towards those that are white. It's this hatred that, that are going back and forth and back and forth. And, and, and maybe you've noticed that the unrest in our country seems to be getting to the point that it was back in the 60s. I like what Franklin Graham posted on Facebook after the recent Dallas shooting of the five police officers that was racially inspired. He wrote this, Our nation seems as divided as ever. America's in trouble. We are in need of divine in- intervention like never before. Our next president is not our great hope. Jesus Christ alone is the only hope for a sinful nation and people enraged with evil. I couldn't agree more. We, we see that nowadays. We hear these self-righteous Jews who felt they alone had favor with God and they had such hatred for these Gentiles that when Paul just mentioned the word Gentile, they exploded. And sadly, there are churches today that, that have certain degree done the same thing. You know, I think of the hippies, you know, back in the 60s. They were coming to faith in Christ and, and at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And they were just welcome the way they were. Now, God touched their hearts and they became born again. And the Lord did a sanctifying work in their lives. But what would it have been like if Pastor Chuck posted a sign that said, No hippies allowed? Or if they came in and, and they just, you know, they weren't welcomed and they, you know, they just kind of looked down on them as a church and, oh, these, these smelly hippies, oh, they shouldn't be in here. You know, it would have hindered one of the greatest revivals of our times. But I think sadly today, you know, unless you, in some churches, unless you dress a certain way, you have your life all cleaned up before you come in, then you're not welcome. We forget that we were all sinners in the need of repentance. 
That God called us all to be fishers of men, not cleaners of fish. God does the cleaning. It's up to Him. But when we resist the opportunities to reach out to the lost with the hope of the gospel because of prejudice or racism, then we're no better than these Jews coming against Paul for just saying the word Gentiles. Again, we need to recognize that we're all nothing but guilty sinners like anybody else, and we're just enjoying the grace of God, and that grace is as much available to anybody today, anywhere as it is to us, as it was to us. And we have the responsibility to share it. And this is what Paul did faithfully, sharing his testimony beautifully. Let me say this. Just because you share your testimony doesn't mean that they're going to immediately come to Christ. It doesn't mean that they'll say, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that's our hope. But God has called us to plant seeds. It's up to Him for the harvest. Sometimes they will respond with giving their lives to the Lord, and sometimes they'll respond like they did to Paul here. Away with such a fellow from the earth where he is not fit to live. You know, I like what Pastor Greg Laurie has said. Throw a rock into a pack of dogs, and the one that barks the loudest is the one that got hit. So you're sharing your faith, and you're sharing, and you're touching some things in a person's life. Man, they may just start barking real loud. Oh, who are you? And, and man, because the Holy Spirit is touching their hearts, convicting their lives. And I believe that's what was going on here. The Holy Spirit was touching these, this crowd's life, and, and man, they wanted to stop. And this crowd is up again, once again, in an uproar. Look at verse, verse 23. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. <laughs> Paul's going, oh man, here we go again. I, I mean, time after time we see Paul coming to an inch of his death. You'd almost think that Paul was looking for trouble. Listen, Paul had one thing in mind. He saw the mob as lost sinners and wanted them to know Christ. And he never held back the message, even though it meant risking his life. When Paul looked upon this great crowd of the Jews, he wanted so much for them to know Jesus, whatever the consequences. Man, can we say the same thing about people around us who are lost? We all should have a burning desire for the lost. Every Christian, we may not all have the gift of evangelism like, like Billy Graham or Greg Glory, but, but we've been called to evangelize. Now there's a problem here. Verse 24 says, The commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks and scourge. See, Paul was addressing these Jews here in the Hebrew language, and as we read in verse 2, but that means that the guards didn't understand a word Paul had said, and now they're wondering, what did he say to get these people so riled up? So instead of asking Paul, hey, what did you say? They go, we got to beat it out of him. Oh, that's real smart. Look at verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? <laughs> when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman, and because he, he had bound him. So they're getting ready to scourge Paul. They have him tied with these, these uh, thongs and, and uh, scourging just a, a torturous way of gaining information, of bringing about a, a confession. A person being scourged would be bound and beaten with a whip that contained sharp pieces of lead and rock. The accused would either confess or, or they'd die. 
And as long as the, the prisoner cooperated and would cry his confessions, they'd, they'd lay, it, lay it a little easier on them, you know, until uh, he elicited from him a full confession to everything. And then they would just kind of lay it across his back until he received 39 stripes. Quite often, though, the prisoners died from this examination. Very painful uh, thing to happen causes a tremendous loss of blood. If a prisoner refused to confess his crime, then the executioner would lay the stripes even heavier, get even harder on them until he'd be forced in agony to cry out his crime. Just a real torturous uh, device of the Roman government by which prisoners were interrogated and, and Rome was able to solve a lot of crimes. But when you think about that and you think about what Jesus did for us, taking every one of those scourgings upon his back when Pilate ordered him to be scourged. Isaiah 53, 7, But as a lamb before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He had nothing to confess. So they laid those 39 stripes upon Jesus. Each one was heavier and heavier until his body was broken. Broken open, not his bones that were broken, just the body was broken open. His back was just basically turned to hamburger, ripped apart by shreds. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us of Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. We have healing. We have forgiveness. We have our testimony because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So they're, they're binding Paul. They say we're going to scourge you because we want to know what's going on. However, it was against the law to bind a Roman citizen without following proper procedure. And if this guard had scourged Paul without the proper procedure, it would have cost the guard his life. <laughs> so no wonder the guard runs over to Paul and says, hey, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yep, sure am. Now the captain, being proud that he paid a large sum for his citizenship, tells Paul so, and Paul responds, yes, but I was born into it. See, the Greeks felt that it was a high privilege to be a citizen of Rome, so they would pay large sums of money for it. But Paul simply says, but I was born a Roman citizen. So now they're in trouble. Look at verse 29. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. I bet they were. Then we read Paul is placed in protective, protective custody. Look at verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And this is one of those things where, and Paul said, that we're going to stop here again. We'll look at what takes place in this council next time together. But what we see is, is the Lord is protecting Paul. See, God was not finished using Paul yet. God is not finished using you or I as well. If he was, we wouldn't still be here. Now, you may look at, at Paul's life and go, whoa, what a hard life he had. Lord, I don't want my life that way. Yet, the Lord, or rather, Paul knew God's purpose for his life. And Paul's purpose may be different than ours, ours life, but Paul's purpose wasn't the suffering that he would go through. In fact, he told us in Philippians 1.12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm convinced that what kept Paul going was his love for the people to reach the world with the good news of salvation of Jesus Christ. And I know there are people that we all know those around each of one of us, that, that they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't have their sins forgiven. They don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to ask the Lord to give us a heart like Paul, no matter what the risk, to boldly proclaim the gospel. 
Last, the Lord, help us to put aside excuses that we make that would prevent people from hearing his word. Paul shared his testimony. He did it clearly, precisely, spoke of his life before Christ, how he came to the Lord, and the result of coming to the Lord. A powerful testimony. Because I know in this room we all have a powerful testimony. And if you've never shared it before, I encourage you to do so. And listen, it's exciting to share our testimonies with one another. Man, how did you come to know the Lord? And just, just share, man, this is what I was doing and, and this is what's going on. Every year I go to the, to the pastor's conference in California. There's a guy named Steve Winery. He's a pastor of Calvary up in uh, Washington State. And uh, we get around and, and there's people he doesn't know. And he'll say, so, so tell me your story. What's your story? We all have a story. We all have a testimony. We need to share it. Share it with one another. Share it with the world. Look for opportunities for God to use you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us a blueprint, Lord, for our testimonies. Lord, now I pray that you'd help us to use what we've learned, God, to be able to be those that that go into this world seeking to win the lost, Lord, using your word, using our testimonies, that we might glorify and honor you, Lord. We know, Lord God, that you have your hand upon our lives, that, Lord, nothing happens to us that doesn't first go through your throne, of grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Father, for that boldness. We pray for your Holy Spirit to give us that power to be that witness, Lord God. We thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for this church, Lord. Just pray your blessing upon them, Lord. Pray your blessing upon our fellowship time as well. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.